That's our prayer and our desire that God sends a spiritual awakening. Amen? You can go ahead and have a seat. We thought that'd be a great way to introduce uh, week two of this mini-series, Talking to God. There are some prerequisites to revival, a spiritual awakening. One, we find in Second Chronicles 7, that God's people have a sense of humility and repent and cry out to God. There's another prerequisite that I'll talk about in just a moment, but I believe if there's ever a time that our city and nation and culture needs revival, a healing, saving revival, it's now. And let me jump back to last week just to sort of uh, highlight where we went so we can continue from there. We talked about 2020 and how there were some major disruptions in 2020. Uh, we had a pandemic. We had uh, what I identified as sexual revolution 2.0. And we had significant racial strife in our nation. All of that was unified together by an election. That's slight sarcasm there, all right? It was a very divisive, polarizing time for our nation. And I talked about the sexual revolution that is going on that is really tearing at the fabric of our nation. I won't re-preach last week's message, talked about these. I want to talk uh, a little bit about race and how that has uh, been impacted in the last couple of years, uh, different uh, things have arisen. You've got things like Black Lives Matter, BLM. You've got uh, critical race theory that arises out of that. Uh, you have, we had uh, violence that emerged in protest that then became an effort to defund the police. Uh, we have cancel culture. Not just about race, but now people can go back decades and things you may have said. How many of you ever changed your mind in the last 20 years? <laughs> and yet you can be nullified for that, uh, depending on what you said or did. And I'm, I'm very aware, uh, we talk about microaggressions, and the list goes on and on. And with all our attention on race and justice issues, it seems like we are more divided and more polarized, not less. And I'm mindful of the sensitivities that are heightened uh, in this area, not only in preaching it, but just a couple of weeks ago, we celebrated giving a million dollars to Victory Project. They might be able to establish a location on the west side of Dayton. And some folks that were here from the west side of Dayton just were all excited and celebrating that and the impact that will have. At the same time, someone left in tears over how they were offended by what was said on the platform. So there are sensitivities heightened. There is a division, divisiveness that is everywhere in our culture. And so now more than ever, I think it calls for the church and to play the proper, proper role. Let me encourage you that as you are forming your opinions and beliefs and behaviors or strategies coming out of that, a few things to beware of. First of all, beware of the echo chamber of same color conversations. I would suggest to you that if your attitudes about race and racial issues and what is or isn't correct in our world, uh, that if your conversations are only with people whose skin tone is like yours, you have an incomplete view. And some of those delicate conversations, you don't just 
walk up to someone and have it, it requires that you are relationally invested and engaged with people. Uh, but I would encourage you to have that as a goal, to want to, want to go further in a, in, a, in a kind and caring and open way. I would also warn us, and you know, I've, I've been blessed uh, at CLC 32 years, lots of black friends of mine, both in the church, pastors across the city, have had many of those conversations, and it is easy to just think the way you were raised or think from your perspective, but when you delve into it, you realize, oh, wow, there's, there's far more to, for me to be sensitive about. Beware of Christianizing your view, especially if it's formed in an echo chamber, a worldview echo chamber where the way I see it is what the Bible says, and that's it. It's amazing uh, how many of us take Scripture and, and make it our interpretation of it is the gospel truth. And the more I have conversations, I realize, wow, there are different ways for believers to interpret the same passages and have the same, deal with the same perspectives. I would also encourage us to beware of Americanizing our theology. I said last service that, you know, if I, if I preach it here, it has to be able to be preached in Africa because, because this book is not an American book. It's, a, it's a, a book that spans the world by the one who created the world. And so it's his truth. And so I have to be sure that the truth is, uh, is appropriate in our culture. In formulating beliefs and strategies and opinions, uh, be biblical. That should go without saying, but in a sense of biblical and spiritual unity. And when we have unity in a spiritual way around biblical truth and really a biblical worldview, God shows up. In addition to if my people will humble themselves, repent, turn from their evil ways and pray, another criteria for revival is unity. And we saw God showed up in amazing ways in Second Chronicles chapter 5 when they finally dedicated the temple that Solomon built. And uh, they brought the ark into the temple that represented the presence of God. It says, When the priests came forth from the holy place without regard to divisions and all the Levitical singers in unison when the trumpeters and the singers were made to make themselves heard with one voice. Notice, unity, unity, unity. And praise and glorify the Lord. They said... He indeed is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house, the house of the Lord, was filled with a cloud, so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And unity among us is essential for revival, is essential that we are able to identify and model and, and sustain unity for a world that is desperate for it. And so as we move forward, let me just say, for the sake of unity, as I did last week, I'm going to ask you uh, to hold your applause and verbal affirmations uh, in the message because uh, we tend to do that at our strong opinion and feeling points, and we may or may not have the same feelings and opinions. So I'm going to ask you to applaud and amen in here. <laughs> or wait till you get outside and then explode with applause and, and cheering and whatnot. But uh, let's just listen uh, for the most part, even though I will say several applause-worthy things, if I may say so myself. No, <laughs> just kidding. And so, you know, I, I've preached about race so for so many times over 32 years. That I'm like, okay, well, how do I? 
there's not a lot that's new. It's, it's biblical truth. And I remember when uh, early in the early years, in the early 90s, Dr. Tony Evans, who is the pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship, wrote a book, Beyond Roots. He'd written several books. But he wrote, wrote one, Beyond Roots, back in the early 90s, uh, in case people ask you who I am. And that was a, a really helpful source for me in, in delving into issues of race. And uh, in the mid-90s, uh, when uh, Congressman Turner was mayor of Dayton, I worked with him to organize the mayor's prayer breakfast, and we had Tony Evans in as a speaker. He's a phenomenal communicator. And so uh, I kind of just looked back at some of his material, and, and so he's some of the source of the remarks that I'll make today. But I've asked you in this series, uh, we were going to do talking to God, kind of about your devotional life, but instead I'm asking you to talk to God about things that I have to talk to God about as a pastor. And some will overlap what you talked about God about just as a Christian. But would you pray about now and in the future, how am I supposed to preach about race and racism? I have already discovered even through the weekend that uh, I'm doing my best, but we all have a different twist and a different opinion and perspective. And it's especially delicate. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says something about you. I don't care what color your skin is. I don't care what your facial features and what your outward appearance is. I don't care where you're from. It says something about you because it's universal. And uh, God spoke to Samuel the prophet and he said, for God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, that's not all bad. We look at people's outward appearance. We kind of size them up. And we make decisions about them, but it's not just people. I mean, if you pick up an apple, you look at the outward appearance. If there is a wormhole there, you're not going to eat that apple. It's good to see that outward appearance. When you get up and you see it's cold outside, it's snow. When you walk across the pavement, it's good to look at the appearance of the pavement to decide is that wet or ice. I didn't make the right determination once. I have a plate and five screws in my leg to prove it. All right, so outward appearances are okay, but... The difficulty, the danger comes when we look at people's outward appearances and then we, we prejudge them, their heart and their character and their worth based on what we see. And with that, prejudice, racism, is a problem for people with dark skin and people with light skin. All of us prejudge people. Racism is, is not... Uh, one, one particular, I use the word race in our cultural sense. Biblically, there's one race. It's the human race. I'll get into that. But we talk about different races. So from a cultural perspective, uh, racism does not belong to one race or another. All of us as humans look at the outward appearance. I was talking to a, a black friend of mine who we were talking about the message, and they just said, you know, I just want people to see me. See me. Look past just the boom. And just see me and know me. Know my perspective, as I want to know you and your perspectives. And so it hit me, and, and it was kind of one of those aha moments, and, and it probably isn't very profound to anybody here, but it struck me. I was like, huh, you're right. Diversity is God's design, say always, on purpose, and forever. God created us as diverse as we are, and he did it always on purpose and forever. And we see that when you go, we saw it in the early pages of Scripture. We'll talk about that. 
But at the end of Scripture, in heaven, John has a revelation of the heavenly host. And look what he says in chapter 5, verse 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Speaking of the millennial reign of Christ, but here, this diversity of people that God started in the Garden of Eden goes all the way to heaven and beyond. We don't get to heaven, and then we're all monotone. So the variety that you see, to take a moment and just do a little rubbernecking and look around and try to three, four, five people look different than you. I don't care what the difference is. Just look at them, all right? Very different, right? That's not going to change when we get to heaven. He created the diversity and the variety on purpose. I mean, go back to Scripture. Uh, I've mentioned that, you know, Ancestry.com is really interesting, but what's even more accurate and go back farther than that is the Bible.com. Uh, because I can tell you who your ancient ancestors are way, 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 way back there. We all go back to one family. It's the family of Noah after the flood. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I tried to look. Dr. Evans said that those were nicknames in the original language, that Ham meant dark or burnt, Shem meant dusk, and Japheth meant bright. I couldn't find that, but theologians tell us that after the ark, when they were the, the, the humans 2.0, if you will, original version from the flood, that Ham went into Africa and settled where darker-skinned people originated from, that Shem settled across the Middle East and into Asia, and Japheth and his descendants settled up into, into Europe with lighter-skinned folks. You say, well, how could that possibly be? Well, if you listen to geneticists, they will tell us that our outward appearance, our features of how close the melanin is to the surface of our skin determines how light or dark your skin is. Uh, the color of your skin, uh, the, your facial features, your hair, your physical structure and whatnot, all of those differences combined amount to account for less than two-tenths of one percent of our DNA. So two-tenths of one-hundredth of our DNA is our external appearances that we attribute to race. We're 99.8% the same genetically. And it makes perfect sense. If you know the Bible, the Bible is not monochromatic at all. You go back to Jethro. I have quoted Jethro in uh, our leadership uh, mentoring sessions with uh, business leaders and whatnot. I call it the Jethro consultation. He went to Moses when Moses was leading the people of Israel and basically said, Moses, you have an org chart problem because it was very flat. There was Moses and then all 1.5 million people reporting to him. And the Bible says people waited in line for forever just to see Moses, to see Moses. To see Mo and Jethro pulls him aside and says, listen, you need to reorganize and you need to organize the people, pick leaders over tens, fifties, hundreds, whatever, and, and, and set it up that way. And so there was a total rework. And Jethro, who gave him that wisdom, was a priest of Midian. Midian is in the northeast corner of Africa. So you've got an African speaking into the life of Moses, and that actually, some of that org structure has shaped our nation centuries later. You look in the Bible and you see the prophet Zephaniah was a Cushite. Cush are descendants of Ham from the continent of Africa. As were Bathsheba, Rahab, and Ruth. All three of those women 
uh, dark-skinned women from the, the continent of Africa, and they are in not only the Old Testament, but in the family lineage of Jesus if you go to Matthew chapter 1. Moses had an Ethiopian wife. Jump to the New Testament, and Jesus, when he, after he was born, you remember Herod wanted to kill all the babies trying to kill Jesus. His family fled to Africa. And they were there during his infancy years, perhaps his preschool or toddler years, before they returned. Which really flies in the face of uh, those who want to claim that uh, Islam is the, is the belief of Africa. Actually, Jesus was there almost six centuries before Muhammad stepped foot uh, on the continent. And then when we look further, we see Philip sharing the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch and then baptizes him as the gospel spreads to Africa. The church in Antioch, one of the co-founders was black. Uh, of that church, founded the book of Acts. And then go to early Christianity where the church found the church fathers and early theologians who basically wrestled with defining the, the theology that we believe. Several of them were from the continent of Africa, would have been black theologians. Uh, among them, Augustine, I'm sure you've heard his name, uh, Athanasius, and Tertullian, all from the northern coast of Africa. So, so this book and the church from it is the church where diversity is God's design always on purpose and forever. So second area to pray about is how does a Christian live and work in unity? It's not just as a church, as a pastor, but how about you? Because you're going to come in contact this week and interact with people who look different from you, have a different background, different perspectives than you. And how are you to be a voice for divinely driven unity. The divine work of unity is Christ's prayer for us. It doesn't surprise us because Jesus modeled crossing racial and gender barriers with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. I'm not going to read it, but that is earth-shaking in breaking down barriers of racism and prejudice. First of all, Jews hated Samaritans and vice versa, and there were both racial issues of, of prejudice and racism, but there were also spiritual things woven in. And when spiritual and racist issues are woven together, it's a very hard thing to fight. And when Jews would travel, they would often travel around Samaria just to avoid going through there. And Jesus told his disciples, I must go through Samaria. Okay, Lord, so they traveled through Samaria because he had a divine appointment and he sent his disciples into town to get food and he is on the outskirts of town around noon and a woman comes to draw water. That doesn't sound very alarming to us unless we're familiar with ancient culture. A woman w was responsible for, for drawing the water, much as you'll see in Africa today, and it's heavy work and so they want to do that in the cool of the day before the sun is out. And so women of the town would typically go to the well in the morning. And you have to wonder if she got tired of the glances and the smirks and the comments because of the basket case her life was. So she just decided it's easier to go in the middle of the day than to deal with the shame and the ridicule. So Jesus speaks to her. And that's breaking down construct number one because Men in those days, especially a man like a rabbi like Jesus, would not ordinarily speak to a woman, especially a Samaritan woman. And he asked her to give him a drink. She calls him out right away. How is it that you as a Jew are asking me as a Samaritan, by the way, a woman, for a drink? And 
Talk about breaking down tension. He asks for a drink of water that his Jewish lips would drink from her Samaritan cup. And as they go a little further in the conversation, Jesus starts to unpack the basket case of her life. She's had five husbands. He says, call your husband. She says, well, I don't have a husband. And she, he goes, you're right. You've had five husbands. The one you're living with now, you're not even married to. Whoa. So she, I, I perceive you're a prophet. And, and Jesus reveals himself to her as the Messiah. But in that, she got uncomfortable. So she tried to get religious with him. And so she said, well, you know, as far as where we worship, you people kind of a racial slur. You people say we should worship there. We believe we should worship here. Jesus sidestepped it. didn't get pulled into it. didn't get defensive. But, but all through that conversation, it ends up in her life change as he waded into crossing those barriers and having a delicate, courageous conversation. It's no surprise then that in his final prayer for his disciples, not just his disciples, for all of us, his followers, after he uh, had the Lord's Supper before he's crucified, here's what he prayed for us in John 17, verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So you and I, thousands of years removed, have believed in Christ through the word of the disciples, so he's praying for us, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me that their unity would be so compelling that they would say, how is that possible? And they'd have to surmise, they'd have to be open to the fact, you know what, they're united because they are followers, they have a relationship to one for whom diversity was his design always on purpose and forever. Unity does not mean sameness. It is oneness, and it's oneness of purpose, and it's oneness in value. Once we become believers, there is a purpose that, that, that prevails over every other purpose. And that is, we, we love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love our neighbor as ourselves, and we are called now to go into all the world and make disciples. Jesus called you, he called me, to be a cause for righteous change where you work, where you live, where you shop where you or your kids go to school, where you do athletics. He called you to be a change agent for righteousness. We have the same purpose. We likewise have the same value. And understand that if the church doesn't model it, the world will. And the world is trying to model reconciliation and unity and, and doing a divisive job of it. Remember the, the, the nursery rhyme? Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Say it with me. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Why in the world was he going to the king's men anyway to get put back together? And uh, it's kind of a lighthearted illustration that, you know, when we turn to government to fix things that government can't fix, we'll be frustrated. We should turn to the church for things the church can fix, the church can heal, the church can restore. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, because it's a key truth if we're going to make a difference. In Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I am, my identity is in Christ first and foremost as a believer. It is not in any culture or any group. My first priority is my identity in Christ. As Tony Evans says, therefore, there is not white truth or black truth. It is God's truth. And race is secondary as a subject to, to the heart of God, but first and foremost, our identity in Christ. And so he asks the question, for you and your identity, what is the adjective, what is the noun? Adjectives describe and define the noun. For instance, if I have hot coffee, it says something about that coffee. For me as a coffee drinker, it says how much cream I'm going to put in it, what kind of sweetener I'm going to put in it. It even tells me how I'm going to drink it. I'm going to drink it that way. If it's not hot enough, I'll put it in the microwave because I like hot coffee. A different adjective is iced coffee. And so if I have iced coffee, I know how I'm going to fix that as well, and I'm going to drink it very differently than I drink hot coffee. They taste different. They're a different experience. It's a different ambiance, a different everything, all because of the adjective and how it defines the noun. And so he uses the same illustration. Which is the adjective for your identity and which is the noun? Are you a white Christian? Are you a black Christian? Because then your blackness describes your Christianity and your whiteness describes your Christianity. Or you're a Christian white so that whatever your culture is, it's defined by your Christianity. Are you a Christian black so that your culture is defined by Christ? It is the lens through which we see ourselves and through which we see and relate to other people. Now, it's a challenge. It's difficult. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we see that, that racial issues were an issue, a struggle in the New Testament as well. Picture this. Jesus was born in Israel, and he was born a Jew. The only Bible Jesus had was Genesis through Malachi, we call it the Old Testament. And so people who came to Christ had to try to, de to de sort of decipher and figure out, okay, as a Jew, am I still a Jew? Do we still practice circumcision? Do we practice all the dietary laws and regulations? Or do we not do that? And so the New Testament goes through a process of teaching and explaining, no, it's not Judaism on steroids. It's a new faith following after Christ. And so there was, because initial Christians who were Jewish thought, thought okay, if the gospel's now open to Gentiles, non-Jews, or Jews and Gentiles, uh, if it's open to non-Jews, then they've got to become Jewish. They have to get circumcised. They have to obey our laws and regulations. And so there was a lot of racial tension in that early church as they sorted through that. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, we see Paul addressing that. And he talks, uh, and so he's talking about two basic racial groups. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. 
there is to be unity in the body of Christ in the context of the diversity God has given to us and the unifying agent is the blood of Christ. That's how we can possibly become unified in our differences. Let me use an example, an analogy. Uh, let's talk sandwiches. All right, you're probably starting to think about lunch pretty soon. How many of you like mayonnaise on your sandwich? Okay, it depends on the sandwich. I like, I like it on salami, I like it on turkey. Okay, I like it on my french fries. Try it. In fact, try it and then I apologize because when you try it, you're going to love it and it's not good for you. Okay? You learned a bad habit from me. All right? So just, it's better than ketchup. Anyway. So to make mayonnaise, uh, from what I understand, uh, it takes some things that don't mix. For one, one thing, oil and water. Oil and water don't mix. You can stick them in a blender, right, and it gets blended for a while, but it's going to settle back out to oil and water. You need what's called an emulsifier. All right? Eggs, from what I understand, are that emulsifier. If you take the right amount of water, the right amount of oil, and eggs, and okay, they stay blended. It's a whole different ingredient. They never separate back. For Paul, the blood of Christ is the emulsifier of people, however different they might otherwise be. However they might mix or not mix, the blood of Christ unites us and creates a a consistency among us that the world says, hmm, that's pretty good. We're to be salt and light to a world that is in need. James makes it clear to us likewise that discrimination blocks advancement of the kingdom. You can read about it in, in chapter 2. But the unity of the body of Christ, that's why those of you who have been, you can go all the way to Africa and there is still a sense of connection between us as brothers and sisters in Christ even though our cultures are way different. There's, our unity in Christ prevails. So in addition to praying about how am I supposed to preach now in the future about race? And some people want me to jump quickly to the activist, do this, don't do that, say this, don't say that. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit do that for you. As last I heard, he didn't quit his job. And so he is the one to tell you how to then live in and walk in the truth. And so I'm just going to preach the truth. Continue to pray for how does a Christian live and work in you. And then pray, talking to God, what is the role and understanding of the church in a divided culture and even more specifically of CLC in a divided culture? Let me read a quote. It says, The church has allowed the kingdom of men to divide the kingdom of God as though God rides on the backs of donkeys or elephants. We have allowed the culture to dictate to us rather than us being salt and light to the culture. I remember being at uh, a luncheon. We had several of our inner city partner pastors together and we were reflecting back and most of us have enough years that we can at least recall Dr. King and some of the pastors uh, were actually part of that process and, and they said, you know, in the 60s, the civil rights speeches and marches began in a church. Then they'd go out. There was a biblical foundation. I have a book uh, of Dr. King's sermons. They're incredible. Their speeches, their sermons, they're biblically based and they are, they are the catalyst for transformation in a culture and for justice in a culture and it's biblically sound. 
now the forces for division in our culture are not that way. And, you know, you've got Black Lives Matter. My response to the phrase Black Lives Matter is absolutely they do. But my difficulty, once you get beyond the phrase, is when I look at the organization, and this organization is not very Martin Luther King-ish when you see their agenda, which is very married here. But as far as being concerned about justice and equity as Christians, what does the Bible say? What does God require of you but to do justice and, and love mercy and walk humbly? So it is to be our concern. And uh, we must see our collective calling as Christians to unify into something bigger than ourselves and even bigger than our church. Peter talks about that. In Matthew chapter 16, you can read about how Jesus calls Peter, that famous conversation, and he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, that's what Peter means, I will build my church. And then Peter takes that analogy further, and when he wrote the letter of 2 Peter, and he tells believers that each of us as believers are living stones. In those days, it was more stones than bricks. And so if he's the rock and build a church, we're all living stones in that, and we are built together into some larger church of God, if you will, in our society. So as each one of us united together, making up a, a larger whole. The unity of the church is essential to the progress of God's work on earth in history. You have heard me say countless times, Satan does not fear a big church, he fears a united church. Not only does he not like us being united, the thought of the church of legitimate Christians across greater Dayton being united sends terror through the, the, thro the, the throngs of hell because of the great things that God can do. I remember in the early 90s, uh, Promise Keepers was big and really emphasizing reconciliation. And so we, we spent a weekend gathered together with uh, Mount Calvary Baptist Church when uh, the Sam Winston Sr., I had a mental block there, uh, was still alive. And we had uh, Omega with Pastor Darrell Ward and uh, our church. And we spent all day, from Friday night and all day Saturday with Dr. John Perkins, very active in the civil rights movement, a peer of Dr. King. And then Sunday night we had a combined worship service at Omega when they were located on Salem Avenue. I remember after the weekend kind of faded down. We're kind of basking in the high of that and having a conversation with Dr. Perkins. Okay, what do we do next? It's, you know, you can have conversations about reconciliation and seminars and whatnot all you want to, but it has to go from here to here. And so the, really the best way to reconcile with one another and to have unity with one another is start serving your city together and you will begin to discover differences. And you'll step on each other's toes, you'll bump each other, and you'll, you'll, you'll have the great back and forth, and you'll find out differences. And that's where the real work of reconciling and unity happens when you have that purpose and you begin to pursue that purpose. And you realize, okay, we're different but the same. Let's, let's, and then together in unity, great things will happen. So that's why ever since CLC has been very much engaged with, with part, developing partnerships, friendships, relationships with churches across our city of all different cultural backgrounds and external appearances that we might be one in reaching our city and growing forward. And there's a passage that Dr. Perkins brought forward that hit me because I realize I have 
connections to this passage. I quote it a lot. I have connections to it way back when I was in high school, uh, when I was in a church youth group. And uh, they called the youth group, based on 2 Corinthians 5, Christ's ambassadors. And as I reread this passage that I've read many times before, quoted many times, I had a flashback to that. And we, had a, we sang what I would consider a somewhat hokey song. But it was coming out of probably the 50s and early 60s. And so here it goes. There was actually an old AG, I'm sorry, an AG person my age in the crowd last night that also knew this song and one this morning. So uh, we are Christ ambassadors and our colors we must unfurl. We must wear a spotless robe, clean and righteous before the world. That, that, that we must show we're cleansed from sin and that Jesus dwells within, proving, sounds like a fight song, doesn't it? Duly that we're truly Christ ambassadors, Christ ambassadors, yay, okay. Um, and so in that, uh, ambassadors and embassies. So let's get academic here. What's an embassy? An embassy is a sovereign piece of territory in a foreign land. I've been by the American embassy in Eswatini, and it is an American satellite, if you will. If you've got problems, you go there as an American. And, and there are ambassadors who live in and work at the embassy. And so they are foreigners. It is a foreign piece of territory in a foreign land staffed by ambassadors. Therefore, the church is a piece of heaven in foreign territory called earth. And all of us in the church are ambassadors of heaven to earth. The kingdom of heaven is different from the kingdoms of man. And we, our identity, first and foremost, why I'm thankful to be an American, my primary identity is as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And, and there is a value system and, and a way to treat each other and value each other and love each other and serve each other that, that surpasses things on the planet I'm an ambassador to. And we are Christ's ambassadors. So when you go home, you're going to your embassy. When you go to work, you're going to your ambassador's desk, workstation, machine, whatever. When you go play, you're at whatever recreational field you're at, you're wearing your embassy garb in here. We're ambassadors. We're not in the world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. Jesus, we, I read that last week, and we're, we're in but not of the world. We're ambassadors in but not of this world. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Point yourself and just say new creature. Okay? New creature. New way of thinking, interpreting, valuing, relating, talking. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So as his ambassadors, if you want a one-word summary for your job description as an ambassador for Jesus Christ in this foreign land, it is reconciliation. 
First and foremost, we are to reconcile people to Christ. Vertical reconciliation is essential before we can have much horizontal reconciliation. But at the very least, all of us who are vertically reconciled to Christ and we are his ambassadors, we should have in our heart an attitude of reconciliation and value and celebration and respect for all of those on a horizontal level. Therefore, we're ambassadors of Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In an unbelieving world, one of the things they will look at as a proof of the truth we declare. One of the things they will look at is, okay, the world I live in is a mess. The world I live in, I don't feel valued, understood, heard, seen, what? When I come here to the embassy, how am I treated by the ambassadors? And the way they're treated by the ambassadors should make them say, I want to be a citizen of this kingdom. Introduce me to your king. And when they see the ambassadors out and about, they say, you obviously aren't of here. What is it that makes you, who is it that makes you different? And it, it adds credence and validity to our declaration. Who you need is who I serve because my identity is in Christ and yours can be too. And then you will be a new creation. That is the calling for us as the church to be Christ's ambassadors. So to, to close this message together, in a moment, I'll ask you to pray with me, bow your heads, and then, and then I ask the team to share a song that is a prayer that God would make us instruments of his peace. After they share the song, like we did last week, take just a couple of minutes before you leave and just reflect. Let the word sink in. Ask God to speak to your heart. Open the eyes of your heart that you might be a reconciling ambassador in our world in desperate need of the love of Christ. And then you can dismiss yourself. But let's, let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're so amazed at your wisdom and your divine providence, Lord. You created us. And our differences, Lord, our differences and our diversity is your design always on purpose and forever. Forgive us, Lord, when we prejudge those that are different than us that we get hung up on outward appearances. Forgive us when we Christianize views long before they've really been discussed and discerned and shared and followed up. Lord, help us as believers to value brothers and sisters with same purpose, same value. And help that to be contagious among us as we go out into our world. Lord, our world needs Jesus. Our world needs a peace and understanding that is possible no other way. And you said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. It's clear that you've given us the ministry of reconciliation. So Lord, our prayer today is that you would make us instruments of your peace.